0: Our scripture reading this morning is coming from the book of 1st Timothy, the 4th chapter, verses 1 through 5. Again, 1st Timothy, the 4th chapter, verses 1 through 5. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving for those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer this is the word of our lord
1: amen thank you yolanda let's pray together father we are so grateful that we get to be here today and that we have a a sure word in your scriptures a word that is helpful in terms of its encouragement and the fact that it gives us hope and then there are texts like this that while it gives us hope there are there are firm and strong warnings And uh, Lord, I pray today you'd help me to make this clear, this warning, this caution, this concern. And I I ask that your Spirit would move today. That the lies that we can believe would be seen for what they are, and when held up to the authoritative Word of God, would be banished from our minds and our hearts. And so whether the Spirit of God falls on someone in this room or watching over the internet today or listening in the weeks to come, I I pray that you would speak and help us to have a discerning heart and mind. Help you to make this text clear so you can use it for all of its intended aim. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just off the coast of Tuscany, Italy, sits a 951 foot 450 million dollar cruise ship half submerged the costa concordia on january 13th came within 500 feet of the shore and ran into an underwater reef it took over an hour before the crew of the concordia notified the people that indeed the ship was taking on water. In fact, they didn't notice it until the ship started listing that they were actually in trouble, and then they began to, to lower the, the, the rescue boats. The captain of the ship was vilified by the press. He was nicknamed Captain Coward. And the reason is, is because while everyone else was trying to be evacuated off the ship, rather than doing what captains are supposed to do, stay on the ship, he decided that he needed to get off the ship. Well, actually, what he told the press was, in the course of the evacuation, he tripped and fell into a rescue boat, and that's how he got off the boat. <laughs> yeah, right, that's, that's what happened. So He's been arrested and investigated for manslaughter. Twenty-five people died and fourteen are missing, and this boat... The Costa Concordia will go down in our lifetime as one of the largest shipwrecks in our lifetime. So a shipwreck causes a great deal of carnage and disaster. And it's no wonder that we use terms like shipwreck to describe life when it really goes south. When someone makes a huge mess of their life well in our industrialized culture we don't maybe use the term shipwreck as much but we use another term train wreck you probably heard someone say that i did a a few months ago i was having lunch with someone and i asked him about the the course of his life and he said you know what mark my life has been one big train wreck what's he saying what he's saying is that everything about his life has been a calamity a disaster a a huge problem Shipwrecks and train wrecks all have a common denominator, and that is that they create a great mess. Our text this morning is talking about what it means, or the caution about what it means, to shipwreck your faith. When Paul was talking to Timothy, this young pastor, about the problems in Ephesus, he says this in chapter 1 and verse 18, Wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience. And then he says this by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Some have made shipwreck of their faith. What is he saying? He's saying that some people made a mess of what they claim to believe. Some people have made a mess of their life. Well, that then begs the question so how does a shipwreck happen? How do you shipwreck your faith? How do you make a train wreck? of your faith it happens and it begins with false teaching with believing a lie and whether that false teaching is over like you're reading the wrong books you're listening to the wrong person or whether it is you just begin listening to your own sinful wicked heart you begin believing a lie that's where all spiritual shipwrecks begin and it leads to disaster so today we're turning a corner in our study in first timothy we're beginning chapter 4 And we return back to a theme that we heard Paul talk about in chapter 1, but we've left for a little while, because chapter 2 was essentially about how the church was to worship together. Chapter 3 was about deacons and elders. Chapter 1 set the stage in that there was false teaching going on in this church, and Timothy was sent to the city of Ephesus for the express purpose of getting his arms around this teaching, refuting the false teachers, many of whom had become spiritual leaders in the church, and helping the church find its way back to the truth. So... Chapter 4 is essentially about the theme that developed in chapter 1, false teaching. And Paul calls Timothy to both refute this teaching and then shows him what his role is and how he goes about doing that. In fact, if you look at the chapter in your Bible, you'll see that there's a major division between verse 5 and verse 6. The first section, verses 1 to 5, talk about this false teaching. And then the rest of the chapter, verses 6 through 16, talk about how Timothy is to conduct himself. So this morning what I want to do is do two things. First, I want to walk you through the characteristics of this false teaching. We're going to look at five characteristics, and I hope these serve as kind of warning signs for you about things that you believe that are incorrect or help you maybe with your own discernment about what you hear and how you process it. And then secondly, I want to turn and talk to you about the gospel and why understanding the gospel is really, really important in light of the discernment required as it relates to false teaching. So this morning, we're going to look at five characteristics of this false teaching. Now, in verses 1 to 5, Paul describes the content of this false teaching in contrast to what he has just talked about in regards to the gospel. What you need to know is that the content of what he's talking about here is not primarily theological, but rather it is practical. It has theological underpinnings, but Paul is primarily talking about things that relate to how people lived Things that were going on in their real lives. The problem is with, false, with, with false teaching is not just a theological issue. It is that wrong teaching leads to wrong living. Well, let me put it this way. Wrong thinking will lead you to wrong actions. And so what Paul is addressing here are wrong actions, but underneath it is this perspective of this wrong teaching and what they should be looking out for. So Paul shows us what this looks like. Look at verse 1. The first thing we see in verse 1 is that this false teaching is to be expected. Verse 1 says this, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, it might seem rather surprising to you, it did to me when I began studying this passage, that Paul would start out this way, and yet there's a really important point that I don't think that we often think about. And it's this, that false teaching is common. Believing lies should be expected in our present culture, meaning we ought to be a little bit more on guard for it. You see, the reality is we can become passively naive, we can lack discernment, we can make incorrect assumptions about even the very nature of the world that we live in. So verse 1 begins with the word now, and this word now links from what we looked at last week in regards to the content of the gospel. So last week we looked at the mystery of godliness. We saw that expressed in verse or 16 where he says, he was manifest in the flesh, he was vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. That was the summary of what godliness or the gospel is all about, and now he's going to set it in contrast to the false teaching, which is why he uses the word now. The main point of verse 1 is the phrase, Some will depart from the faith. Now frankly, this is a sobering and very important point, and it's this. Listen carefully. Paul is saying that the church, even this one, is always comprised of people who are not genuine. Just let that sink in. Within this room, within the hearing of my voice is a congregation of people, and not everyone in this room is the real deal. That's what Paul is saying. The reality of of apostasy and the fact that some would walk away is a major theme that Paul addresses as he writes to Timothy. He's warning him, he's cautioning him. In fact, take your Bible, let me show you this in two places. Second 2 Timothy 2.15 is the first one. This relates to Timothy's role as a pastor in addressing the needs in the church. Verse 15. Of Second Timothy two, he says, "Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness." So that's what Timothy is to do. But notice how prevalent is this idea of false teaching. People who will walk away, and and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among whom are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows who are His, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So there's what Timothy's charge is. Then look at 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2, just a chapter over. 2 Timothy 4 two says this, "...preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching." For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Friends, you know what our problem is, is we read that text and we think, boy, it must have been really bad in Paul's day, and how unusual for that to happen. And what he's describing is something, frankly, that we need to hear today. That is just as possible in Paul's day as it is in our own. For someone to believe a lie and wander off into myths. The problem is, is that we don't think that way about the church. We don't think that way about the culture. We don't see the reality of the church the way God sees it. Next weekend we'll be talking about the theme of revival. And one of my favorite quotations from a man who knows a lot about revival, and you've heard me say it before, when asked what would happen if the church and Jesus Christ in the United States were revived, what would happen? His answer is this. Millions of church people would be saved. It's a sobering reality. So he says... Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, the Spirit expressly says, meaning that it's either by virtue of prophecy that the Spirit had revealed that this was a part of the day of the age, more than likely it also refers to what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 when he said that many false prophets will arise and lead many away. In other words, what is happening and what will happen in anybody we have been warned about in advance. Paul then also says that in later times, he describes this era that we live in as the last days. The last days is a term that refers to the era of time that we live in post-Pentecost, continuing even until now. And these last days have a particular character to them. The character is that they are very challenging to live in spiritually. So here's the crazy thing. That there's a sense in the world in which you and I are living in right now, as seemingly normal as it is, listen, is a place filled with the characteristics of the last days. Now, our our culture, our world, our environment is not as bad as what it will be. And not as bad as what it could be, but our environment in which we live as believers in Jesus Christ is still a spiritually dangerous place to live in. And the problem is that we don't often think like that. We, we have a naive definition of what is normal and what should be expected. Paul identifies for us here that we ought to realize that false teaching abounds and false living is to be expected. Not tolerated, but it's to be expected as a part of the character of this age. We ought not be surprised when we encounter it because it is part of the environment of this era. You know what that means? That means that we ought to be more on guard against it. We ought to be more aware of the reality of what wrong thinking can do. So the first thing we see here is that it is expected. Here's the second thing. We see that it is demonic. Now, I don't want to be overly dramatic here. I don't want you to be overly dramatic. But look at what Paul says, is that they will depart by what? By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and to teachings of demons. So what Paul identifies here is the source of this wrong thinking that, That the problem is here, not just bad teaching, not just wrong teaching, but it's the problem of it is its source, and its source is very dark. So I want you to be aware. I don't want you to be naive. I don't want you to treat false teaching as just as if it's only wrong. I want you to realize that what we are dealing with here is serious, that we are in a very real battle, a spiritual battle with eternal consequences on the line. Our world is not a spiritually safe place to live, and it is dangerous to not see it that way. If you just walk through life as if, man, this is a safe place, and I can just think about anything, let anything come through my eyes, I can read anything, and just I'll just process everything in this world and the culture, just let it come in, it is a dangerous place to have your soul be. The devil is a master deceiver. His aim is to persuade people that true theology is false and false theology is true. His aim is to do anything He can do to divert you from the truth. He's the ultimate author of everything that distorts the truth. He's the father of all lies. He is constantly scheming against God's purposes. He's a master at deception and confusion and counterfeit actions. He's a master of embedding just enough truth in something so that you take the bait. Or just enough of the goodness of God's creation in something that you you buy it hook, line, and sinker. But His ultimate aim is to destroy you and the glory of God expressed through you. He hates you. And he wants to destroy you. So why would Paul talk this way about false teaching? Why would he talk about it having a demonic source? Why elevate it to that level? Why not just say it's wrong? Why talk about the, the, the deceitfulness of demons and the teachings of... the uh, deceitfulness of spirits, rather, and the teaching of demons? Why elevate it this way? You know why? Because he wants us to take this seriously. Paul has seen the effects... The destruction and the devastation he knows that we're not playing games here this is serious our twins are presently enrolled in a driver's education class and as a uh, part of their coursework they had to watch a video connected with that called red asphalt they came down after watching the videos today, and I can believe the video we saw. I'm like, what, what, what was it? They said, well, it's super graphic. It showed all sorts of, of car accidents and body parts. I mean, it's called red asphalt for a reason. And it was really a sobering video. And the whole purpose of the video is to take a young man or a young woman, about 15 years of age, and shock them into realizing that to operate a vehicle is a really, really big responsibility to to kind of make them hit the wall of, look, really bad things happen, and here's an example of what happens if you're not responsible. You know, I've often wished that I had such a tool when it comes to trying to help people understand the dangerous effects of believing a lie. I wish I had a tool that I could just show people and make them believe the consequences of believing a lie. Do you know what's going to happen? I mean, I've, I've sat there and watched what happens. I've seen things that I wish I could bottle or film so I could show you to warn you. For instance, if I could say, look, just sit down. Watch this church split right down the middle. Watch this. Or sit here and watch this as this spouse confesses their sin to their spouse. Watch this. Look at, look at her eyes. Look at the eyes of the kids. Look at his eyes. See this. I want it to take you in the living room and to smell the pain of this moment. Watch what happens to the name of Christ in the community as it relates to this issue that now has emerged. Or, let's fast forward this person's life and look how absolutely alone he or she is. I wish I could just Just somehow show people. See, being deceived, listen to me, being deceived creates a spiritual train wreck. So it's demonic. It should be expected. Here's the third one it's fake. It's fake. Verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now Paul tells us about the teachers. Not only what they have taught is demonic, but now their actions are even deceitful. First, the teachers are espousing things that are not true. It says the insincerity of liars. But worse, it's not just that they're lying, but they're insincere in their lying, meaning they're hypocrites. In fact, that's the Greek word that we have here. The word for insincerity is hypocrite. It means to give an impression one direction, but to go another. It's used for an actor to play a part. They don't practice what they preach. They appear godlier than what they really are. But secondly, the false teachers... Do this, notice this, because they have a seared conscience. This is a really important term to get our heads and hearts around. The Greek word here is cauterizo, from which we get our English word cauterize. Can be used for when you brand an animal. Could be used in this context that their heart has been branded by the mark of Satan. More than likely, though, the meaning here refers to what happens when something is cauterized. That it loses its ability to feel. It loses its sensation. And what happens here is that the false teacher's heart has been hardened or now is insensitive to the truth. Sin has caused a deadening of sensitivity to hypocrisy and inconsistency and the consequences. Don't miss that. Sin causes a deadening of sensitivity to hypocrisy, inconsistency, and consequences. Meaning... They just get used to being inconsistent, and it no longer bothers them. They get used to being hypocritical, and they can blow through it. What used to be a little alarm bell that went off, like, you know what, I probably shouldn't do this because I'm really not being real here. Or they do things that are wrong, and they know they're wrong. They just keep blowing through it, and blowing through it, and blowing through it. And before you know it, they got a conscience that's seared, and they don't even think about it being wrong anymore. They have become hardened. There's a reason why in our community, tornado sirens go off every Friday at 11. They test the sirens on the same day, the same time of the day, every week, whether it's good or bad weather. And the reason is so that when an alarm goes off at 3 o'clock, you won't wonder if it's a test or not. And the reason they do that is very simple. An alarm is only as good as people's sensitivity to it. I mean, you, like me, could probably get in your vehicle and not put on the seatbelt, and you hear the ding, 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 and you just kind of drown it out. In fact, in newer cars, it goes ding, 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 and then it goes ding, 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 ding. I don't know what happens after the fifth one. Like an ejection or something. I don't know. Car shuts down sounds like something about ready to blow you're like get it on get it on right why do they change the the meter and the pace of it you know why to break the consistency of it because if something is familiar it ends up not being effective this is what you do at a when you're sitting in the airport you listen to a flight attendant blah 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 you're reading your paper right just kind of goes in the background what you do with your alarm clock keeps going off and going some of you can sleep right through it and you need a different alarm clock that's the problem You're not lazy. I love you. You're not lazy. You just need a new alarm clock. That's what you need, right? If you don't get the alarm clock, the new alarm clock, then you're lazy. But that's not the point. The point is, is that after a while, you just begin to become accustomed to the environment. So, how does a conscience become seared? Listen to me. How does that happen? Here's how. Practice. Hear me. How does the conscience become seared? practice. A conscience is seared over time by doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, and before long the person is convinced that it's not really a big deal, that it's not that big of an issue, and at the end of the day convinces themselves that they're actually right when in fact they are wrong. And then it's even worse when the person ends up leading others to do the same thing it lead other people into their self-deceived destruction and that's why you and i should be scared to death as to where your heart could go or what you could become because self delusion is practiced self destruction you practice it fourth the fourth characteristic is false teaching or these lies that we believe are performance-based. Here or now we get into the meat of the teaching as to what the problem is. Verse 3, it surfaces, "...who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth." So Paul lists two familiar issues in the New Testament regarding external obedience. The forbidding of marriage and the forbidding of foods. What is is this about? Well, we're not exactly sure of the full nature of the heresy that was going on in the city of Ephesus, but we do know something about what was happening in Colossae and Corinth. In both cases, and likely in Ephesus, the effect of Greek Hellenism in terms of philosophy and a worldview was having a field day in the church. And central to this Greek philosophy was an idea that the body was bad and the soul was good. Harkening back to Socrates and Plato, this idea that the real element of man, the real element of what it meant to be human is your soul. The body is immaterial. The body doesn't matter. So the result of that was people could do anything they wanted with their body without any concern for whether it was moral or not. After all, it doesn't really matter what you do with the body. It's immaterial. What really matters is your soul. And that led to all sorts of licentious and sinful and immoral behavior. After all, the body doesn't matter. It's just the body. On the flip side was what Paul was dealing with in the city of Colossae. So one area is light of uh, licentiousness. The other area was this, that people who viewed the body as bad felt like, boy, in order to, to accentuate the soul, let's discipline the body. Let's work hard to deprive ourselves so our soul can fly. And it led to some level of asceticism or legalism. On either side of this issue, you have either licentiousness or legalism. And in Colossae, it was extended to food and beverages and festivals and Sabbath observances. And apparently, this legalism began to take root in Ephesus. These teachers were suggesting in the city of Ephesus that being married or eating certain kinds of foods created second-class Christians. Now, it wasn't necessarily, and it doesn't usually happen this way that it's that this clear where someone would say look if you get married or you eat the wrong food you're not going to go to heaven it's it's rarely that clear no no it's more nuanced than that it usually sounds like this you know real christians don't eat that or you know if, if you really want to be spiritual i mean if you if you really want to be godly i mean you, you, you can be married i mean that's that's all right but if you really want to be spiritual you shouldn't be married. And the problem with this mentality is that it creates a performance mindset. And at the end of the day, performance mindsets always lead to the same center. They lead to self at the center. So in that respect, the licentious person and the legalist have the exact same problem. They just express it differently. Let me explain. The licentious person is filled with self-indulgence. He wants to feed the flesh. She wants to feed the soul. She wants to feed the the, the desires within him or her. But the legalist is not filled with self-indulgence. No, he is filled with self-effulgence, which means to glorify oneself. And he or she uses religion to do that. While the licentious man or woman will use immoral acts to feed the soul, the legalist uses religious activity to feed the soul. The licentious man knows what he did is wrong, but in his pride he thinks he's the exception. The legalist man thinks what he's done is right, and in pride he thinks he's the model. And at the root of both is a proud, self-reliant, deceived, performance-based heart. The licentious man could care less about what he does, and the legalist cares too much about what he does. The problem in Ephesus was this performance-based perspective which will eventually lead a person to believe that real obedience, real righteousness, real Christianity is mostly concerned with what I've done. And whether it's licentiousness or legalism, it will lead to ruin and your name will be stamped all over it. You will self-destruct. You'll make a shipwreck. And it begins by believing lies. The final thing about this false teaching, and it seems rather obvious, but it's important to note here, is it is not the gospel. Look at verse 4. For everything created by God is good. and Or back up, sorry, verse 3. It is to be received, foods that God created are to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What's the truth he's talking about? He's not just talking about the truth about something that's right versus wrong. He's talking about the truth of the gospel. That's what the church is the pillar and buttress of. It's not just the idea of something being right, but it is the essence of what the gospel even is. For everything created by God, verse 4, is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer. And you might look at that text and go, wait a minute, Mark, he's just talking about foods and thanksgiving. He's not talking theologically. He's not talking about, like, doctrine. And, and that would be to make a huge mistake if you saw it that way. Because that would be to think that the Gospel, namely that Jesus Christ died and came for sinners that that truth of the Gospel is only about theology. But the Gospel wasn't meant just to be something you believed. It was meant to be something that you believed and then that worked in your life. Augustine said, faith alone saves, but the kind of faith that saves is not alone. It's supposed to work. The Gospel is so transformative that it affects everything. And to make this point very clear, Paul says the same thing in three different ways in verses 3 to 5. First, he says that we look at food entirely differently. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. The false teachers are purporting that certain foods and certain practices are off limits. Paul says, no, no, no. We know the truth about the gospel, and we receive those things with gratitude. Why? Because our identity doesn't come from what foods we eat or don't eat. Secondly, he says that these things are not bad. In fact, they're good. For everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. They're good if they're viewed through the right lens. And then verse 5, he states that even foods that others might deem as sinful can actually be holy or righteous. I mean, this is crazy. People are saying, no, these foods are bad, these foods are bad, these foods are bad. And Paul's saying, no, no, this food isn't bad. It's good if you sanctify it with the Word in prayer. Meaning, if you look at it through the lens of the Gospel, food doesn't make a person righteous. It's the gospel that makes a person righteous. Food isn't holy or unholy. The word and prayer make it holy. So what is Paul driving at? He's he's driving at here that this mandatory abstinence that these false teachers were purporting had nothing to do with the Gospel. And as such, it is actually the teaching of demons. It's not just wrong teaching, it's deceptive, demonic teaching. You see, undergirding this false teaching was a deceptive, demonic error, and undergirding the Gospel is this freedom and truth. The contrast between false teaching and the Gospel is so clear, and frankly, it's a bit scary this is, why, this is why you have to know the Bible. A week or so ago we were having our family devotions and I, I leaned in to my children and I said to them, listen to me, let me tell you why we do these family devotions and let me tell you why you get up early in the morning and read your Bible. You don't just do that because you have to. You don't just do that because that makes you a better Christian. You do that because you are putting into your brain the words of the living God, and these words become the fabric through which you will filter everything in life. Because your mom and I can't tell you everything that's right and wrong. We, we, aren't, we can't know everything that's going to come at you over your lifetime. You're going to build a grid with the Word of God, so that when bad things come, you can see it and go, wait a minute, that's not right, because here's what the Bible says. And if you don't put the Scripture into your mind and into your heart, you won't know what's right and wrong, and you will make a mess of your life. So why do you get up to study your Bible? Why do you read the Scriptures? Why do you seek God? Here's why. Because you are just a few decisions away from believing a lie and making a mess of your life. That's why. Welcome to our devotions, right? <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't that aggressive, but I was... So the problem of false teaching is serious, friends. So now let's turn and just briefly look at how the gospel works. So the gospel, by this I mean that Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners. The gospel means I'm a sinner, I need a savior, couldn't do it on my own, I received the Lord Jesus and then he changed me. So how does that relate? How does the gospel work? Let me show you how it works. It works first. Because now the gospel means that everything that I see is good and it is an undeserved gift from a gracious God. So the biblical understanding of life is this, that God is the creator of everything and everything that He created is good. Sin entered the world through Adam and it marred everything. So God has to come and rescue us through His Son and eventually He'll come back and restore everything that's broken and bring it all back to the beautiful, pristine essence of what it means to be in His presence. But right now we live in this in-between world, between a creative order that's broken and a longing for a day when Jesus will make everything right. And even in this interim period, there are still really good things that come. The sun came up today in Indianapolis. Your heart continued to beat this morning over the weekend new children were born marriages were celebrated friends hung out together and laughed they were almost sick some of you got deep deep sleep last night you go this afternoon and you'll enjoy really really good food do you know what all of these things are All of these things are gifts given by a gracious God, and while they are a part of the normal existence of this lifetime, they are not deserved. This is why you bow your head and pray before a meal, because what's in front of you, you don't deserve. Right in front of you, God has provided for you. Every single one of them is a reminder of God's kindness. So food and marriage are good gifts from a gracious God in the midst of a broken world. So you see things through this lens. I don't deserve any of this. This That's how the gospel changes what you see. And it's just a quick step to think, you know, I deserve this. And when you believe that lie, you have taken the first step towards a shipwreck. So the question is, what do you see? In food, and in friends, and in sun, and in a heartbeat, what do you see? Do you see you, or do you see God? The Gospel relates to that. Secondly, this is beautiful, I think identity and worth are found in Christ, not in performance. I mean, this is an unbelievable difference. You can live your life by performance, or you can live it by promise. To live by performance means that you try and earn your own salvation, you try and do all the things by yourself, you try and get there on your own. To live by promise means that you realize, I can't do this, I need somebody else to do it for me, meaning Christ. The beautiful thing about the Gospel is that God forgives people, He adopts them, He fills them with the Spirit, He makes them new creations, and from that moment forward, His identity changes. changes. He now, he and she, he or she now belongs to Christ and everything about his or her identity is wrapped up in the beautiful reality of what it means to be in Christ. The redeemed child of God is now marked by promise, meaning what God says over you, not your performance. If you base your worth or your sense of safety, security, and identity in this world based upon your performance, you are in for a world of hurt because you will disappoint people, you will disappoint yourself, you will fail over and over and over. Your only hope in life is not your performance, it is the promise that God puts over you. God promises to do for you in Jesus what you could not do on your own. Your worth is not found in your ability to do anything. That was the problem in the first place. Instead, life is based on the promise of God, God, and that changes everything because now you are free. So when somebody says, real Christians don't eat this or real Christians don't get married, It's a ridiculous statement because you are completely free in Christ. Because your identity is in Him, not in what you do. Now third, of course, obedience is a part of everything that's going on, the gospel means that god gives us the right desire and empowers the right choice one of my favorite verses in all the bible is philippians 3 or 213 it says it is god who works in you both To will and to work for His good pleasure. What does that mean? It means that every right desire, right thought, right action, any act of obedience, anything that I've ever done that God would look at and say, that's great, the only reason it's there is because God produced it in me. He gave me the right desire. He gave me the right yearning. He empowered the act of obedience. By changing the will and changing the desire... God creates the possibility of the right choice to be made. And the beautiful thing is that those who experience know this that when they do good, they know that they did not do it on their own. That God had to create obedience in them. It's unbelievable that He would not only call us His own, but then create in us new desires. So if you find yourself, you wake up in the morning or late at night and you're like, I want to read the Bible. And you get into it, and you find a passage that just leaps off the page, and God speaks to you, and you're like, yes, this is true. You better know, that is not you. Oh, you're there. But it is that God, through His Spirit and through His Word, has popped into your life and heart and there you sit or there you lay in your bed amazed that god would be so merciful not just to save you but that he speaks to you and that he gives you the right desires it's no wonder that it is all for his glory and that's where we end That the glory of God is both the goal now and in the future. So what do you do with this kind of grace? You know what you do with this kind of grace? You you marvel in it for all of eternity. So heaven will be a place of physical existence where we glorify God perfectly. But even now, even now, we are called to glorify God even if it is not with absolute perfection. We are called to take the good gifts that God has given and use them as platforms. To make much of God and His grace. The Gospel means that you know who you are. You know what you deserve. And you, and you look with marvel at what God has done. And therefore, you embrace the gifts of God not as the means by which you are accepted or the means by which you are made perfect, but you receive the gifts of God as a conduit to reflect the glory of His grace. Listen to me, the enemy does not want you to live this way. He wants, instead, instead of taking everything and using it for God's glory, he wants you to take little parts of your life and fragment them and segment them, and he wants you to take little parts of your life and keep it for yourself. His aim is to convince you that you need a little kingdom, a little godless kingdom, a little arena of your life that God doesn't need to know about, and God doesn't need to be a part of, and we don't want God to be in here. We've got to keep God out of this little world. This is the place where you can be autonomous. This is a place where you can be God. And in this little thraldom, whether it's licentious behavior or whether it's legalistic behavior, at the end of the day, God will not tolerate your little kingdom. Whether your kingdom is named license or whether it's named legalism, it makes no difference. Both kingdoms have the same source, the same problem, the same goal, and the same you right in the middle. And the key is to hear and receive the Word of God and go no kingdoms without God. No thoughts without Him. No believing lies that lead into these other areas that that will end up ruining my life. Because the problem is disastrous. The enemy knows you. He knows the human race. And his aim is to shipwreck your faith so he can destroy your soul. He hates you and he wants you to believe a lie. So, so where, does it, where does this start? Where does this start making a train wreck of your life? It starts by believing one lie. And that's why you need the Spirit of God, it's why you need the Word, it's why you need the regular community of the believers to remind you, to wake you up and go, No, don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. Don't believe that lie. And to realize that we live in a hostile, dangerous, lie breathing world. What's remarkable about the cruise line or the Costa Concordia is that when they searched the navigational records, you know what they found? The captain had been dangerously close to that exact same underwater reef numerous times before. The Concordia should have never been that close to the shore, but over time they got closer and closer and more comfortable. It was a shipwreck, frankly, that should have never happened because they should have never been that close, should have never been on that course in the first place if only they had stayed on the right path. I'm pleading with you today. Beware of believing any lie that can shipwreck your faith. Father, I pray that whether big lies or small lies, we would call them for what they are today. For the lie that some believe that they really aren't that big of a sinner, that they really don't need a Savior, that they can self-atone and find ways to skirt around your righteousness. I pray that today you would expose that lie for what it is and that today in faith they would repent and believe in Christ and turn from the lie of self-autonomy. I pray that today would be the day of conversion for some who would see for the first time, I am believing a lie. And then, Father, for those who have professed and named the name of Jesus, we don't know if they possess faith, but for those who have professed faith in Christ, I pray that You would help us to be guarded against believing a lie. A lie created by our own device, our own mind and heart. A lie created by culture. A lie created by the devil. Oh Lord, help us not to believe lies. Not even one. Help us to be so rooted in the gospel, so rooted in righteousness, so rooted in Christ that we can see things the way that you want us to see them. So Lord, put a holy fear, I pray today, in our hearts of the possibility of where we could go. And then also remind us of the hope that we have in Jesus, who has promised us that He will never leave us, and He will never forsake us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.